A little bit of background before we get to the text and the thought that I feel led to share with us tonight. Uh, This book that we refer to as Hebrews, there is not agreement on who the author is. You may hear somebody say it at some point, you know, whenever Paul penned these words, uh, people do not agree on who the author is. They say that the writing style varies so much from the Apostle Paul that this most likely was not written by him. And whenever I read statements like that, I scratch my head and say, how in the world do you know? Because I don't know. But I do know this. If scholars don't agree on who wrote it, I'm probably not going to convince too many people. Okay? And so throughout this study, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say the writer of Hebrews writes. The writer of Hebrews says. And here's what we're going to assume, and I think rightfully. We're going to assume that this scripture is inspired like all the other scripture, though we do not know who the human author is, okay, or was. And so that's one thing that I want us to know right up front. I don't even know who wrote the book. The second thing is this that I want us to think about, because this is what the authors tell me, and this is what I'm taking at face value, that this book is written primarily to Jews. Someone says, well, how can you not know who it's written to? Because I don't understand Hebrews yet, okay? So I'm just telling you, the authors say that this was written primarily to Jews. Of course, a Gentile could pick it up and began reading and could begin understanding, but primarily it was written to Jews, some of which who were believers and and believing already in Christ, others who were not believers, who had not yet placed their faith in Christ. And so what the, the scholars say is this, is that sometimes the text will jump from one group to another as to who is being addressed and, and what is being talked about. And then this really excited me and really thrilled me. The author that I refer to many occasions said this, it will really help you in your understanding of Hebrews if you have a good understanding of Leviticus. I thought, well, man, I am striking out so fast it's not even funny because I I know a little bit about Leviticus, but for you to just sit here and quiz me on Leviticus, guess what I'd do most of the time? I'd shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, it's Old Testament. I'm not worried about it by way of the law necessarily. So you understand what I'm saying? I'm not a great scholar on the book of Leviticus, and that's supposed to be a help to the book of Hebrews. Wonderful. Something else, though, that is said about the book of Hebrews is this, is what it will do time and time again is it will reveal the magnificence or the superiority of Christ. Now, I do know this. That's a good thing. But I don't know how often that's going to roll around. I don't know how long that's going or how often that's going to happen. I don't know. I I don't know how many times we will see such a thing take place. And so as your pastor standing before you, here's what I know. What a lousy introduction. I'm not excited. I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I don't know what we're about to be studying, I don't know what I'm going to be uh, addressing as we get through this, but only by the grace of God will we be able to. But I do believe that if you will pray about this, and if I will pray about this, God will bless the effort, and this will be a beneficial study to us. All right, and so I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to, to somewhat plead with you, Pray for me as we go through this because I do not want our time on Sunday nights to be wasted and you should not want our time together on Sunday nights to be wasted. All right, and so pray for me as we go through this. But by the grace of God, I do think I understand a little bit about the first few verses. All right, Uh, you're thrilled? I should expect nothing less than that based on the introduction I just gave. But tonight we're going to look at several verses, several thoughts 
But I want us to think about something, about a story I'm sure I've shared with you in times past. But most of you know that while going to college as a married student, I worked at O'Reilly's. I worked at their warehouse, and there would have been several hundred people between the offices and the warehouse employed there. And O'Reilly, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the auto chain, okay, where you go and you buy the auto parts. So O'Reilly Auto Parts, based there in Springfield, Missouri. That is where the head offices were, etc. All right, so you go in as a, a newbie, as a new employee there to the warehouse where I was at, and it did not matter your age or anything of that nature. If you were new by way of employment there at O'Reilly's, guess what they gave you? They gave you a green shirt to wear. That was your uniform. It was not the most impressive by way of looks or design, but it didn't matter. We all had matching shirts, all right? So you could tell who the the lowest people on the totem pole were, so to speak, by the color of shirts we had on. If you had somebody in a green shirt, you knew, yeah, they're like me. You know, they're unimportant. They're insignificant. Who cares? But scattered throughout the warehouse, there would be people in what we called white shirts. Any idea why we called them white shirts? Because they had on white shirts. All right, that's pretty deep. So you'd say, watch out for the white shirts. If you had a couple of green shirts standing around, maybe not working quite to the extent they ought to be, they may say something like this, watch out, a white shirt's coming. All right, what a white shirt meant was a supervisor was coming, and of course they had a little bit more authority. They had a little bit more uh, ability to disperse a, a crowd of green shirts who weren't working maybe as hard as they should be or, or were maybe goofing off or something like that. But all that being said... Working at O'Reilly's, it was commonly known and commonly understood that the O'Reilly's still went to work as a family every day to the offices there in Springfield. All right, so they had a massive organization going, and I'm sure they were quite wealthy, but every day, theoretically, the O'Reilly's showed up to work to work in the offices. So every once in a while, here's what you would see in the warehouse. You would see somebody walking through and a pair of slacks and a pair of khakis or something like that, and they'd have on a dress shirt, and you knew that's not someone who's ever in the warehouse. And you needed to take note of that because you didn't know who that person was. Every once in a while, when somebody walking through the warehouse in a pair of slacks and a dress shirt, uh, whenever they were doing that, you might hear someone say something like this, that's an O'Reilly, that's an O'Reilly. Now, you don't have to be very old and you don't have to be very smart to figure this out. I need to know who the O'Reilly's are, at least when they walk through the warehouse. You understand this? Because of their position. Their name was on my check. Their name was the signature on my check. It did me good and it benefited me well to know who the O'Reilly's were, because knowing who the O'Reilly's were, if I saw them in the warehouse, guess what it would do? It would affect me and my behavior at least a little bit. You understand this thought? You understand this principle? There are certain people in your life, whether you realize it or not, there are certain people in your life, you need to know who they are. 
Because they do have some kind of an impact in your life. It may not be the exact same situation. The specifics may be a little bit different than what I'm saying to you tonight. But in general, there are certain people in your life that it would do you well to know who these people are. Because knowing who these people are, if it will will help you in your actions, in your attitudes, or your thoughts, it will help you be the person that you are supposed to be. Now this evening, I want us to think about this thought, and I want us to think about this principle. I want us to think about who Jesus Christ is. It is of utmost importance that people understand who Christ is, because there are many thoughts, and there are many opinions, and there are many ideas on who Christ is. And so a person needs to know who Christ is, because when a person has a right understanding of who Christ is, it affects who they are as an individual. It affects who they are by way of actions and attitudes and, and thoughts and beliefs and so many other things. And so tonight, as we go into this, I just want to say this right up front. I'm going to try to prove what I'm about to say and then make some closing remarks that I think will be a help to us. But tonight, here's what I want us to understand, that the scripture that we're about to look at will make clear this truth, that Jesus Christ is... Is God. Jesus Christ is God. Now, you and I may sit here tonight and say something like this, well, duh, we know that Jesus Christ is God. I understand that, but I think sometimes, even in our thinking of who Christ is, I think sometimes we get off a little bit, and we don't quite understand who Jesus Christ is. And if we get off in our thinking every once in a while, to some extent, to some degree, then we have to recognize just how messed up this world is in their thinking and in their perception of who Christ is. See, a lot of people just think of Christ as a good man. They think he was just a prophet. They think he was, you know, just a good guy that had some good teachings. Some people, you know, would be of the mindset of different things and different ideologies. And so there are people who don't understand that Jesus Christ is God. And yet at the same time, there would be people who would say something like this. I believe that Jesus Christ existed and I believe that Jesus Christ walked upon this earth. I would never begin to argue that. I would never begin to deny that and yet they don't believe in God. Now think about this for just a moment. If you believe in Christ, according to the Scripture, you have to believe in God. And if a person will work all this through in their head as best they can, they will recognize, okay, God is Christ, and Christ is God. So what is some of the supporting evidence for what I've said? How does that help? Well, this evening I want us to begin in verse number 2, toward the end of verse number 2. It says, Hath in these last days, and we'll just start in verse number 1, we're going to come back to verse number 1 next week, but it says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in the time past unto fathers, the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Okay, so he begins in verse number 1, talking about God. In verse number 2, he began speaking of his Son, that being the Son of God, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, God in verse number 1 is mentioned. His Son, whom we would refer to as Jesus Christ, is referenced in verse number 2. And notice what it says in verse number 2 of Christ. It says, 
whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. I don't know what you think of when you think of an heir. I can only imagine what you think of when you think of an heir, but I know what I think of whenever I think of an heir. I think of someone who receives something upon the death of another individual. Is that how your mind works sometimes? Okay, that's how my mind would work generally. If somebody said, oh, they were the heir to this estate or they were the heir to this particular corporation, whatever it would be, I would think something like this. Oh, well, somebody started something, but whenever they passed away, it was passed on down to someone else. Now, I know that we know this, but the world may not quite grasp this, but I want to say again tonight, so maybe if you're ever dealing with someone in a situation like this, you can say, well, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. I want us to understand tonight that God has not and will not pass away. Okay? God has not and God will not pass away. God himself is eternal. God himself is everlasting. And again, we're going to look at this over and over throughout this message this evening. But God is eternal, so he has not and will not pass away. So what does it mean then to become an heir? Well, I think most of us know this, that there are times in which, say someone, and please forgive me because I am probably not doing this justice, okay, to the extent that I would like to, but but think about a family estate. Think about a, a family corporation. There are times in which, say, the founder of it has reached a point in his life or her life where they no longer have the ability to control it like they once did or they no longer have the desire to be involved with it like they once did. And so what do they do? They then make their children the overseers of it even while they are living. You understand this, correct? Okay. Now, again, I want us to know this, and I know that you do, but I want us to realize God did not reach a stage in heaven where he said, you know, I'm just too old for this. You know, this is just far too taxing on me. This is more than I bargained for. I never dreamed it would hit $7 billion down there. I was okay with a couple billion. I was okay with $3 billion. I was okay with, you know, people scattered here. But this is just more than I can handle, so I'm just going to turn it over to my son. That is not at all the picture that is being painted. But what I want us to see is this, is that the writer of Hebrews is declaring this, that in the order of the world, and again, we'll see this over and over tonight, but in the order of the world, Jesus Christ, His Son is every bit as involved and a part of what is going on in this world as God Himself is. Now, let me just throw this in real quick just so that you can kind of rest your troubled mind tonight. You and I will never understand the Trinity. If you're waiting on me to, to get it down to a point where you understand it, forget about it. It's not going to happen. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, and we're not even worried about God the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit right now, but we've got God the Father and God the Son, and the Lord, or the the writer says, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that the Son, He was appointed heir of all things. And so Christ is as much a part of what's going on in this earth as God is though separate, they are one. And so that is one proof, one point of evidence that says Christ is God. But notice what he said next. 
by whom also he made the world. Who made the world according to verse number 2? Christ did. But who is Christ? He's God. So how did that happen? I don't know. But up in heaven before time began, guess what? There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we say, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's exactly what the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, right? And you know what Hebrews 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse number 2 just said? He, he just said that the Son, whom the Son of God, it was Him by whom also He made the worlds. So what does that mean? It means this, Christ made the world. Well, I thought God made the world. He did. Because Christ is God. I know some of you are going to leave tonight going, oh, this is not a good start to a new study. I get it. But we're showing us something here. We're seeing something here that Christ is God, and this is the proof, this is the evidence. He has been appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world. So Christ was a part of the creation because Christ is God. Notice in verse number 3 what it says who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What does that mean? Well, it says that Christ, he was the brightness of his glory. He was the express image of his son. So what does that mean? It means this. Christ, when he came to this earth in the physical sense, he was the manifestation of the glory and the image of the person God. What does that mean? It means this. Whenever a person saw Christ, they saw God. Well, no man can see God. I understand that you and I can't see God, and I understand that you and I are not able to lay eyes on a physical being of Jesus Christ, but whenever Christ walked on this earth, guess what? When someone beheld Christ, they were beholding God. Because Christ was nothing less than the manifestation of the glory and the magnificence and, and the image of the person God. Now notice this, of Christ, it says, and upholding all things by the world, uh, by the word of his power. How many of us know this, that God did not create the world and then just set it in motion and just step away from it and hope for the best? Every bit of this world, everything that the planets do, everything that the stars do, everything that, that things that our eyes can't even begin to see and our minds cannot even begin to grasp, the order that this world has, it is held in place by the power of the hand of Christ who is God. So we've got to understand who Christ is. It is Christ who, according to verse number 3, is not only the manifestation of the brightness of His glory and the express image of His Son, it is He who upholds all things by the word of His power. Christ is so powerful in His word as God that there is no chaos in this world that we live in simply because of His spoken word for things to remain constant and for things to remain in order. Sun, you will do this. Earth, you will do this. Planets, you will do this. Stars, you will do that. Waters, you will do this. On and on it goes. Every bit of that is done through the power of God's word. So he says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Notice what else Christ did. 
when he had by himself purged our sins. What did Christ do? Whenever he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for the sins of mankind. Christ did that completely by himself. And the only way that Christ could do that is if he were sinless. And the only one who is sinless is God. So we get back to this repetitive theme tonight. Guess what? That makes Christ. It makes Christ God because Christ was able to be the payment for our sin. He was able to step in and be the substitute and purge us from the sin that had contaminated our lives. So he says of Christ that he had purged our sins. And then it says in verse number 3, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Christ right now? He's on the right hand of the Father. In his rightful position. Because that's where God sits. So where is Christ? Christ is on the right hand of the majesty on high because Christ is God. So you see this so far? Here is the supremacy and the excellency and the magnificence of Christ already in verses 2 and 3 being expounded upon. He said in verse number 2 that he has been appointed heir of all things. So Christ is in as much control of this world as, as God is because he is and by whom also he made the world. So Christ was a part of the creation. He was the manifestation of the glory and the image of God. He upholds all things. He helps control all things by the word of his power. He purged our sins and he is now at the right hand of the Father. In verse number 4, notice what it says. It says, being made so much better than the angels and he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Remember, we as humans are beneath the angels. The angels are a little bit above us, okay? The scripture says, so if Christ is above the angels, then what that means is this, he is not one of us. He is superior over us because he is superior over the angels. And so once again, as you look in verse number 3, down through the next several verses, as you read of Christ's relationship with the angels, you see Christ is magnificent. You see Christ is superior and Christ is God. So look in verse number 10. Verse number 10, working through this somewhat as quickly as possible, it says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. What does that go back to? It goes back to the creation. Lest we missed it the first time, in the opening verses, the writer says once more that the Lord, Jesus Christ, He was there at the beginning when the foundations of the earth were laid. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Here's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because they are three distinct individuals, yet one, I mean, there's no conversation necessarily taking place. It's not like they're kicking around the idea, what do you think? It's like they spoke and it was, and they were all a part of it, and they were all there. Pop. There goes our minds. Right? Uh, If you're sitting here saying, oh, man, this is easy to understand. I will gladly surrender the pulpit and let you just wax eloquent for a few moments and let you explain this to us, okay? I don't understand this fully except by trusting it in faith that that the Lord Jesus Christ, He was there when the foundations of the earth were laid. 
and the heavens are the work of thine hands. So Christ who is God, guess what? Whenever David writes about how the heavens and the earth were just the, the work of his fingers, that was the hands and the fingers of Christ because Christ is God. Somebody says, I'm getting so sick of hearing this. Just deal with it, okay? This is evidence supporting that Christ is God. So the heavens are the works of thine hands. Verse number 11, they shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth the garment. What did he say in verse number 11 of Christ? He said, thou remainest. What does that mean? It means this, that Christ is eternal. There, there's no end to Christ's existence. Just as there is no end to the existence of God, there is no end to the existence of Christ. Christ is every bit as eternal as God is. And so Christ remaineth, though others would perish, though others would wax old, as doth the garment. Christ, you remain. And in verse number 12 it says, And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, or as a garment thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So think about this. Not only is Christ eternal, he is unchanging in who he is. God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is as eternal as God is, as God is, and he is, uh, and he is as unchanging as God is. That's a wonderful truth. And so notice in verse number 13, it says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So I want us to think about this, okay? I said to you a few moments ago that Jesus Christ is God. And Hebrews chapter 1 begins to explain why. Christ is God, and the evidence that supports this idea, this belief, this doctrine that Christ is God. He says he was there when the worlds were created, when the foundations were laid. He is the one who holds this world in place by the power of his word. Christ is the one who have purged us from our sin, who now sits at the right hand of God. It is Christ who, who, is, uh, he who is eternal, and he is unchanging. And, and, and all of these things point us to the reality that Jesus Christ is God. Why do we need to know that? Why does the world need to know that? In part because of what I said just a few minutes ago. You cannot accept Christ without accepting God and you cannot accept God truly without accepting Christ. Does this make sense? When you're out on the streets and you run into someone who identifies themselves as an atheist, they say, yeah, I'm just an atheist. I've got people like that in my family who say they are atheists. You probably know people who say they are atheists. And yet they would say, but I don't deny the existence of God. Here is what we can say to ourselves immediately. You've got problems with your theology because Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us Christ is God and God is Christ. And you can try to figure out the Trinity. But it's important to know that, right? It's also important to know it for this reason. 
and I know this is somewhat redundant, but I want us to see this. If you claim to love God and reject the teachings of Christ, a person is rejecting the God they claim to love. Does this make sense? Because, see, a lot of people, in, even in religious settings, they don't look at Christ as God. Somebody says, Brother Kyle, you are being so redundant here. What do you think the Scripture is being right now? It's being very redundant over and over and over again. This is evidence that supports the idea, the belief, the doctrine that Jesus Christ is God. Now, now again, somebody says, well, I love God but Christ was just a, a person or, or whatever it may be. He was just a prophet. He was just a good man. He was just a healer, a good teacher, whatever it may be. But I love God. Now, the only way that we can truly love God is if we truly love Christ. We cannot separate the two. What Christ said is what God said. What God said is what Christ says and what... The scripture teaches, that is what God teaches because Christ taught it. Whenever a person recognizes that Jesus Christ is God and God is Jesus Christ, when a person understands who this person Christ was and is, it truly changes their perspective on everything. Does this, does this make sense? Kind of like me getting an understanding of, okay, that's an O'Reilly. Uh, that affects who I am as a green shirt. Because everything about his existence affects my existence right now. When you and I fully understand that Christ was God and God was Christ, and when people in this society and in our culture understand that Christ and God and God and Christ were the same, different yet one, Here's what it does, if they will allow it. It begins to affect everything about them and who they are and how they function and how they live. Now, again, I say all that, and I'm going to try to summarize this very quickly and try to give us something that we can hold on to as we go out into to the workforce tomorrow, out into the world tomorrow. But I want us to realize this. As we live in a society who wants to separate the two. As we live in a society who thinks it's okay to honor one but dishonor the other, honor this one but dishonor the other one, as, as we live in a society that thinks it's okay, we need to be very quick to recognize and we be, need to be very quick to say, hey, listen, you're talking about the same one. You're absolutely talking about the same one. And, and, and I'm not saying that they're going to read Hebrews chapter 1 and say, oh, wow, okay, well, now I get it. But it may be that we're able to say, you know what, this is why I believe what I believe about the Trinity. This is why I believe what I do about Jesus Christ and who he is by way of God. This may not be the most exciting message. It may not be the most thrilling. It may not even be the most clear of messages. I understand, but the, the Scripture just jumps right into this truth. Jesus Christ is God. Here is evidence for it. Here is support for it. And we're going to hopefully next week understand why it is so critical that you and I recognize Christ as God 
because again, it affects how we live and how we operate and function in this world that we're a part of, okay? So as we leave tonight, you may say, I already knew that. I know, I already knew it too. But we need the reminder. We need the reminder, and it didn't hurt you to get the reminder, okay? All right, so let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, we come to you tonight. Lord, I understand that, at least from my perspective, we are wading into what I would consider to be deep waters. 